afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 32nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, the subject is COVID-19 and science journalism. My guest is journalist and radio producer, Mike and Scott. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter. My Twitter handle is at US of Disaster. You can email me directly, sgk23 at drexel.edu. And you can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the COVID calls podcast. All of the episodes are archived there. Please do help me spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. I've got a lot of great suggestions. Um, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. Tomorrow, we will talk about COVID-19 and immigration. My guests will be Carly Goodman, a historian of immigration, a writer and a visiting assistant professor at LaSalle University. She is the co-editor at Made by History, a column in the Washington Post. My second guest will be Camille Mackler. She's the Director of Immigration Legal Policy for the New York Immigration Coalition. As of today, there are 3,094,829 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. This is up from 3,020,117 cases yesterday. 1,004,908 of those cases are in the United States, up from 980,008 yesterday. There are now a total of 57,812 reported deaths in the United States from COVID-19, up from 55,637 yesterday. Sometime today, the United States will certainly go past the number of deaths from COVID-19, that were experienced in the totality of the Vietnam War. That number of US service members killed in Vietnam was 58,220. Now the number of deaths in Vietnam of course goes um, much greater than that. I'm talking only about United States soldiers, but still it's an extraordinarily high number and we're just about to reach it. The difference is that number in Vietnam stretched out over a 10 year plus period. And here we're talking about 10 weeks, maybe a bit longer from recent reporting, but 10 weeks since the first deaths. In the rush of stories focused on our president's medical advice or the stories about the urgency to reopen the economy, we have to also grapple with the fact that we are experiencing what was a decade of trauma in the 1960s and early 1970s in a season. How is that changing us? Are we somehow already becoming inured to it? COVID-19 has been a strange disaster. So many of the deaths, so much of the trauma has occurred out of sight to most people, indoors, in hospitals, in nursing homes. Vietnam in an interesting way, I think was the same. Until the television cameras really started closely following the war later in the war, and until the deaths started to touch every street in America, it remained abstract to many Americans, but that moment did come, the moment of exposure and deeper understanding of the trauma of Vietnam. And then the impact was enormous, socially, politically, and mentally, with effects that linger all the way down to today. How are we processing this Vietnam level of deaths sped up in a season? How are we coping with COVID-19? Also, how are we coping without our normal avenues of sociability? Are we able to provide compassion and care that survivors, veterans, maybe you might even think of in this sense, need? What about the care that caregivers and workers need? I wanted to talk to an expert on mental health and science who thinks deeply about these topics. And so I invited Mike and Scott. I'm pleased to introduce her now. Mike and Scott is a health and science reporter and producer for WHYY Radio in Philadelphia. She covers a wide variety of topics, ranging from new treatments for depression to the impact of foster care on children to the portrayal of mental illness in pop culture and much more. And now she covers COVID-19. Mike and started working at WHYY in 1997. 
Her first job with WHYY was as producer for the weekly mental health program where I first heard her and listened to for years, Voices in the Family with Dr. Dan Gottlieb, great program. Mike now hosts WHYY's weekly health and science show, The Pulse. The Pulse explores stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. Mike and Scott, thank you for coming on COVID Calls. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to remind everyone that you can get questions in and please go ahead and get questions in early so we have plenty of time to talk. You can get the questions in to the chat on YouTube Live. You can email them to me directly or you can go ahead and put them on Twitter and uh, just be sure to tag me if you put them on Twitter and that's a good way to get questions in. Mm -hmm. So, um, Mike and I have been starting these calls just by asking people um, how things are going where they are. I presume you're in Philadelphia or close around there. So, how are things with you where you are? Well, <laughs> it's been an adjustment for sure. So, I have two children. Both my husband and I are very lucky that we both still have jobs, but it's, it's difficult, you know, it's a juggling act and trying to get the work done. The show of course has been super busy lately, given what we report on and how much we had to change what we do and how we do it. So it's been an adjustment for sure. Well, um, I, I want to jump right into sort of deeper topics and we, we will get, um, to maybe more optimistic topics as we go. But the thing that's on my mind a lot today and with that sort of Vietnam casualty number that's on my mind is, you know, how are you thinking about the sort of aggregate mental stress of this moment? I mean, in yourself and all that you know about mental health, mm -hmm. what kind of things are you looking for and how it manifests itself in, in people or in society? How are you approaching this, this level of loss that we're all living through in this moment? Yeah, it's, it's difficult to think about it. Sometimes you can look at the numbers, right? And the numbers are just a chart. And then other times you realize that behind every one of these numbers is somebody's story, is a family that just lost somebody who they loved and that they cared about, is, you know, somebody who didn't get to say goodbye to a family member. So it's sort of startling to go back and forth from these curves that we've been monitoring and are the numbers up, are the numbers down, and then zooming back in to think about, wow, every single one of this is a person, is a family. And I'm, I'm concerned, you know, I'm concerned about people being very lonely. I, myself, you know, my stress has mostly come from not having a moment to myself. Um, but that's perhaps the preferable stress to all the people who are completely alone right now in their homes, who can't see their friends, who haven't hugged anybody. You know, all of this is, is really hard to take. And I think a lot of experts right now are concerned about a big rise in suicides with the combination of loss, loneliness, and an economic crash. So, yeah, there's a lot to digest there. Some of those stresses you were just talking about are, come from uh, forced sociability in ways that people might, you know, if they have roommates or they're in closer quarters than they're used to, um, mm -hmm. even being together with family a lot um, <laughs> without sort of some, you know, release valves of people to go out to go to school. Um, but then also that loneliness aspect of it. Um, are we, I mean, is there any way to, you mentioned the suicide rate and concerns there, do we have some models or ways to think about, project about the kind of impacts we might, we might see? I mean, each one of these is its own sort of sub-discipline of, of stress research, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, and I, I really wonder, I don't know. I, I do think it's hard to predict how we're going to come out on the other side. You know, there are certainly protective factors for a lot of people, those who have strong family contacts or support. And, and there, is many things, there are many things that support resilience, but I, I find it really difficult to make any kind of predictions in terms of like, how are we going to come out on the other side? Because we're not, we're just like at the beginning of it right now. So it's hard. It's hard. I mean, I think a lot about my parents, you know, both of my parents were 
small children during the war and that experience during World War II and that experience completely overshadowed in some way their entire lives and even overshadowed my life by the stories with which I was raised and the way I was brought up was very, very much based on that experience. You know, I'm, I'm German, so my family, uh, you know, they experienced, my mother lost her home and then my mother lived through the bombing of Dresden. My father just basically experienced constant bombings, which for a child, that's a lot. You know, when I was thinking about my grandmother recently, when, when I felt so stressed out and I thought about my grandmother dealing with like having four children that she had to feed and not knowing, will I have a house tomorrow or will this house be gone? You know, so it's really, it's really hard to know. And it's also hard to know, will this be an altogether bad experience or will this experience maybe inspire us to be resilient? Who knows? Uh, I hadn't thought about it that way till you just said it that, I mean, this isn't a war, but the, those traumas you were just talking about, losing a home, food insecurity, um, loss of a loved one, or, you know, just the mysterious world of adults who are grappling with a lot mm-hmm. of stress and strain. I think about children of healthcare workers, for example, and what they must yeah. be coping with right now. My grandfather, to the end of his life, all of my grandparents, honestly, but one grandfather particularly, he spoke about World War II as if it had been the day before. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was so seared into his memory, and he had, was an early 20-something when that was going on. Yeah. Do you think yeah. people are laying in infrastructure of memory right now that's going to last a lifetime? I, I think it really depends, you know, because I think for, for many of us, this experience could be an inconvenience. For many people, this could be an utter tragedy. For many, this could be something that really changes the course of their lives, you know? So it's not like it's not a universal experience in, in the, the grading of the loss, which is also true for every, for every war. But I do think, especially during World War II, if you lived in Europe, you definitely lost somebody in the war. There was no question about it. And many lost their entire family in the war. So, you know, I think for us as, as living in this country, it could really be a, a varied experience of, of how we get through this. So you had a story on the Pulse a couple of weeks back, um, and you, we were chatting just a bit earlier about the sort of frenetic work pace <laughs> of this time. And because um, there's no escape from it, I think for a lot of people, and I don't, as you noted rightfully early on, I think we should all be grateful that we have work if we have yeah. stable work in this <laughs> moment. So I wanna put say that first, but at the same time, um, there seems to be a cycle setting in of a sort of incessant, you know, the meetings one after another after another. Some of those maybe because people do want to reach out and connect, okay. Mm-hmm. But the wear and tear is extreme. And I know as a journalist, I mean, you must get pitched a million st- stories and ideas are coming at you at a very fast pace right now. Tell us a little bit more about that story on the pulse and what you were thinking about this productivity. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think. Right now, there is sort of, uh, as a journalist and probably as a healthcare worker or whatever else, you know, now is a time when your your services are very much in need. Mm-hmm. And as a journalist, you always think about all the things you didn't cover today. So it's like, okay, I did this story and I did that story, but then there are 500 stories I didn't do. How could I have done those stories? And why didn't we do those stories? And how come the Enquirer did those stories and we didn't? So there's always um, sort of all of that moving around in your head. And, you know, it's just a very, very busy pace and I certainly I think all of us feel this great obligation to do right by our obligation to inform people to to report the facts to make sure people have this information but there's just so much happening one of my reporters said you know it's like hitting a bullet with a bullet because it's all moving so fast and we're trying to move just as fast but we can't you know and what i'm telling you today may already be baloney tomorrow so especially for the 
pulse, you know, usually we plan very far in advance. That's something we had worked on really hard is to get our planning and workflow all in order. So we were sort of like planning more like a magazine, like a couple of weeks in advance Mm -hmm. and, and really carefully curating the content. And then this thing hit and it's just like, you know, every day there's something new that we have to do and we're constantly changing what we do. So it, you just have to do what you have to do right now, I think, is, is how I'm trying to look at it. The story talked about this sort of desire to reach uh, stillness. What does that mean? <laughs> Good question. I <laughs> I'm not I, asking if you've reached it. I'm just wondering what it is. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what it is, too. I think stillness just means not filling every moment. You know, I find myself often if there's nothing going on for just like a second, what do I do? I grab my phone and I check Twitter or I check Instagram. So your, your poor brain is probably just wanting for one moment not to process like this immediate input. And, but that's what we do. We're standing in line at CVS or we're standing in line anywhere six feet apart. And just in that one second, oh no, I cannot possibly stand here and just look around. No, I have to grab my phone and and put something else into my brain. And even though I'm just thinking, oh, I'm just glancing at these headlines, my brain is processing this stuff. You know, it doesn't know that I'm not really interested or I'm just passing the time, you know? So I do think I'm trying to get myself to, to not do that all the time, to just say, all right, nothing else right now. Just sit here for a minute, you know? I mean, I've even on occasion, you know, I'm trying to watch a show and then I start to check my phone to see if there's some other news that I haven't looked at or covered or if there's something that I need to take care of, you know? So it certainly becomes an obsession. And I think your brain also starts to crave or believe it craves this constant input. So that's been a bit of a challenge. I've definitely noticed in my sleep that I I haven't been sleeping very well just because... I just think there's too much going on. There was already on uh, the last couple of years, I think some pretty good sort of discussion about digital addiction and even mm-hmm. some of the social media companies have taken some steps or given yeah. some advice on how a person can, you know, decrease the number of times that you, my phone tells me once in a while how often I'm interacting with it. So, so pleasant of it <laughs> to do that, right? Numbers aren't good. Um, so does this, this exacerbates a problem that we already had then in terms of this kind of craving for stimulation that the media provides? Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I, I, I think for me, it's just this, this constant sort of, I think everybody is probably feeling quite a little hypervigilant right now, right? More Mm -hmm. so than perhaps at other times. And with me, I do have a job of having to to look at information and process information. That's certainly part of my job. But then at some point, I also feel like it's fine for me to say, okay, I'm not going to look at this until tomorrow, you know, or I don't need to look at Instagram right now. I can just sit here for a minute. But then it's sort of this Mm -hmm. in your head where you think, oh, no, I should be doing this right now. When you say hypervigilant, is that a, what what is that? mean and that sounds like a clinical term in a in a sense is this sort of yeah i do think you know in people with with anxiety we often talk about how they're hyper vigilant in terms of always thinking or always having this feeling something is gonna something bad is gonna happen and right now that feeling is very real you know and it's it's also more true than in other situations where, yeah, you do have to be really vigilant and you do have to check, did I wash my hands? What did I touch? What did I not touch? How far is this person away? So it's sort of this constant, like, you know, you're always looking over your shoulder right now and you're always worried, when am I going to get this thing? When When is one of my loved ones going to get this thing? what's going to happen to us, you know? So it's, it's, there's certainly a lot of reasons to be vigilant right now, but then it's hard to turn that off when you don't have to be that vigilant in that moment. It sounds like, I mean, you're describing it as a particularly acute problem for somebody in the news business because you have the added responsibility that when something crosses your screen that you think other people need to know about, it's, 
it's it's not just hypervigilance for yourself and your family, but also, mm -hmm. I mean, you're a reporter about health for Philadelphia. It's a mm -hmm. big it's a big city, right? Yeah, yeah. I do think you know right now it's it's <laughs> it's a lot of information, and there is just there is a lot to be anxious about and a lot that I feel people need to know. So it's sort of just trying to remind yourself of how do I do the best job today and in this moment and right now? Maybe that's how I'm trying to look at it, I guess. So I wanna ask you about you know the history of your reporting and, and producing. Have you ever um, covered pandemics before, epidemic? disease before? Has this kind of a challenge crossed your desk before as a journalist? No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I we certainly did a bunch of stuff on Ebola, but Ebola never mm. hit home to a lot of us like this hit home, mm. you know? So Ebola was a different, it felt more like you're, you're covering from far away. And I'm not, you know, people suffer terribly, but it wasn't like, it didn't change our lives and it didn't impact us in the, in the way this has impacted us. Hmm. So when you, um, you know, kind of on a normal day, let's say a not a pa pandemic day, you mm -hmm. must be constantly trying to develop uh, relationships with sort of trusted, with people in the mental health world, in the, in the world of science, so that you're not having to, reach out to them cold when there's a disaster. Can you talk yeah. a little bit? I mean, I guess I'm asking you to give away trade secrets here a little bit, but can you talk about your craft a little bit in that regard? Oh, sure. I mean, I think source development happens over time. You know, you get to know the people who are doing the thing that you're covering and it comes in really handy in times like this. You know, there there's a bunch of public health people that I have been in close touch over the years because they cover vaccine issues and, and that kind of research, which has been really important in the last couple of years. And now they're doing coronavirus work in, in the mental health world, just by having done this for God, 20 some years now, basically worked on mental health issues on some, in some way or another. You just get to know the people who are doing that work. And then they trust you, you trust them, and then you can send them a quick email. You don't have to always go through the pub, like the PR department first and wait for them to filter your message through to the next person, you know? So it's just like, it speeds things up. And so those networks must be sort of paying off right now. I mean, yes, you're absolutely. You're finding yourself on the phone with, so in terms of mental health providers right now or people that you turn to for that kind of information, what? what are you what are you hearing i mean they must be i mean there must be some we're living through a real inflection point about how mental health services are delivered right yeah absolutely so i think for the field of mental health this has been a big jump that perhaps will have some really positive impacts because the field you know the field itself has been really reluctant to do things online and a lot of providers were reluctant insurance companies were reluctant professional organizations said oh no we can't possibly do this it's going to take forever it's not safe it's not secure and then five minutes later everybody was doing therapy online right so sometimes just a necessity of this of a giant incident makes you do something that you would have never tried like this. It was privacy issues? Hmm? What were the issues previously? Privacy? Well, or? It was reimbursement. It was finding secure platforms. There is also a lot of therapists and have said this to me, you know, they, therapy has a lot of ritual to it. You know, you come to somebody's office, you have a meeting, you sit down, it's very personal. And doing that online probably feels really weird, you know, for them and probably for the other person, it takes away some of the formality and some of the setting, you know, so, so there were just a lot of issues, but there wasn't a lot of progress made. And now all of a sudden it's like, pow, you know, here we go. Everybody is doing therapy online. And I'm not saying that's going to be a great thing that we want to do forever, but for people in rural areas or people who don't have access or people with disabilities, 
this is amazing, you know, to all of a sudden have all these people who have at least tried this at some point. And a lot of the, uh, the regulations have melted away and a lot mm. of just the barriers have, have really quickly melted away because everybody realized, okay, we have to do this right now. So that's, that's going to be really interesting to see, you know, and maybe it will mean you don't have to do a whole hour. Maybe you can do 15 minutes if the person can get reimbursed for that. And if you can book 15 minutes and you just want like some advice on X, you know, that would be great. Hmm. What kind of regulations are you talking about? These are standards within professional bodies themselves or these mm -hmm. are sort of state these were regulations? regulations tied to basically privacy laws and hipaa violations and and insurance and licensing so for example if you are a therapist like licensed in pennsylvania and now your client is in is in new jersey you know what does that mean when you're online these were uh, this was all I like see. massive amounts of red tape that has now been slashed basically what does that mean? Somebody who's looking for therapeutic services now potentially is, as the first time I've thought of this, is looking, maybe they're looking anywhere now, it's so long as yeah, therapists can speak has. their language? Yeah, so that I'm not, you know, I'm not entirely sure if all the regulations have been cleared, but I do know that things have eased up quite a bit. And just my take on it is that just having done this and showing like, look, we did it, and it worked and it was really helpful to people, that could mean that this, this keeps pushing on. I see. But I wonder, you know, you described the sort of normal mode, um, person receiving therapy comes to, to mm -hmm. the site, there's a sort of atmosphere to it. Uh, do you think therapists are concerned that as that experience changes and as the time increments change that they may lose some control over their profession? Yeah, I'm sure, you know, none of this feels comfortable, mm. you know, when, when you're in a great, when you're in a great time of change, it, it usually doesn't feel very comfortable and there are losses and gains. So I'm sure, I'm sure people will still have real interactions in offices, but I do think it will be amazing if people want to have this, this online and um, they are not anywhere near a therapist or it means an hour drive. If they can do this, like what we're doing right now, that would be amazing, right? You were talking about loneliness earlier. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's one of the things particularly it's been on my mind as we see the impacts of COVID-19 on, on elder care, mm. basically. So it's reminding us not only the physical of this, but also how how distant a lot of people are in our society. Oh yeah. Do we yeah. have a good handle on the impact of of loneliness in moments like this? You know, thinking about 9-11 or other hurricanes, you know, that so much stress happening and people who are trying to somehow cope alone. Do do we understand that very well? No, I mean I do think the research on loneliness is growing and people are very concerned about the health impact of loneliness and sustained loneliness on people's heart health and stress levels and all of that, you know? So I definitely think it's, it's concerning, but I think it's too soon to say, and depends on how how much longer this will go on. But I've certainly, you know, I have a family member that I've been very concerned about and I, maybe I shouldn't say this here, but I finally said, look, just come over. We'll stay six feet apart because honestly, my fear of this person, you know, basically dying as a result from the loneliness was greater than the fear mm -hmm. of any of us having all been like distanced and safe, you know, the fear of, of something happening because this person was so profoundly lonely and also grieving at the time and so on and so forth. You know, so I do think at some point you have to think about what is, what is, where am I doing more harm right now? Mm -hmm. That's, it's really interesting because the way the trade-off has usually been expressed, you know, of uh, restarting the economy, let's say, Mm -hmm. was the sort of trade between dollars on the one side or risk on the other. But you've just put it in a different frame, which is the, yeah. the stress of loneliness and the risk of re-engagement 
I don't think I've really heard that explored in any kind of, I mean, I know our officials are trying to give us very clear black and white instructions, but Mm -hmm. so much gray area when it comes to this. Oh, there is, you know, and I honestly have to say like where I, where I see a lot of fallout after this is over, hopefully it will be over one day, but you know, the people who have not been able to say goodbye to their loved ones, and the people who basically have had to die alone because of restrictions, I think there is going to be a huge amount of fallout and and fight over that and how it went down and whether, you know, preserving whatever whatever it is, you know, who were you protecting in that situation? Like if I have a family member who is in a home dying from this virus and I'm being kept from that person, you know, the risk is really mine. I am assuming the risk of going in, you know. So I'm just I'm just suspecting that's gonna be where we'll have some really, really serious discussions because that pain of of going through that and not having the chance of saying goodbye and then saying goodbye on some screen, that horror I think is unforgettable. Do we have a good handle on that? I mean, do we have any sort of No, uh, we don't have a precedent. You know, we don't really have a precedent. We we have people, you know, dying in faraway places during war times. Right, that's what I was think thinking about. Yeah, Afghanistan or Iraq, lots of people lost loved ones there. But usually when a person dies in a medical facility, we say goodbye, we're there. You know, we're sitting by their mm-hmm. bedside. So this to me is is just an unprecedented time and and I don't know what's right. I'm not, I'm not suggesting I have an answer, but I just think that's going to be a huge pain pressure point after we come to some kind of like stop where we can actually reflect and think about it. I've been thinking a lot about survivors too. Mm-hmm. And usually, you know, survivors from disaster um, have a large role to play, usually politically. Mm-hmm. either veterans after a war or survivors of a particular disaster, they have a kind of moral authority that we turn to. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think, I mean, the survivor community, maybe it's too early to even use that word right now, um, but I wonder how that's going to take shape in, a, in America. Have you had mm-hmm. a chance to, to think, or do you, what do you think about sort of disaster survivors and the psychology of of survivors. Sometimes they carry guilt. Sometimes they mm-hmm. have a mission. It... Yeah, it's difficult to say, especially, you know, what I've been thinking about right now is that if you had survived this thing, if you have survived this thing, and now everybody's saying, oh, you might get it again. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm still more stuck on that part of the equation because I think that must be right. utterly terrifying if you've been through this once, given how horrible it is for so many people. And then to think, okay, this is not over. I'm not, perhaps, you know, we don't know, but I don't know if if I'm immune to it now. I'm sure for a lot of people that's really scary. But in terms of surviving, yeah, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we have enough people who could who can speak to that yet. I've been wondering what the if if cancer survivors may be a population to to look at or other, you know, people who've grappled with chronic disease or veterans, maybe others. It's like we're going to have around the world millions of COVID-19 survivors who, as you just said, they've gone through something that also comes with still a lot of medical mystery on the other side. Um, Other diseases that seem to be following on. Yeah, I mean, I think going through something like this changes people. You know, it doesn't always have to be for the worse. I think there is a level of knowing that tomorrow is not guaranteed, which I think we always know, but it's not usually so in our face. And right now that is very much in our face. And for people who have survived this illness, I think they will just grapple with that, that something came and changed their lives. And I do think, you know, it's very similar for somebody who had a car accident or who has had cancer. It's like there was the before me and then there's the after me. And I don't, that person after doesn't have to be worse, 
maybe it's better. Maybe this person is more focused and really knows what's important and what we all want and what we don't want, you know? Mm -hmm. But I do think we come out on the other side, a changed person. It's, you know, when, when I've heard um, some officials talk about this as just a bad flu season, mm -hmm. I, I this, what you're describing right now just shows how inadequate that kind of thing yeah. really is. Um, and yeah. how disparate the experience of COVID-19, even from those who, it turns out, some of this research coming from New York, people are carrying antibodies. So they've had exposure and they've missed that car wreck. Mm -hmm. um, but even the stress of thinking about what might have been is real too. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. people that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking with Mike and Scott from WHYY's The Pulse. Please be sure to get your questions into YouTube live chat and also feel free to get questions in using Twitter if you like. I'm at US of Disaster. So I want to turn over now, um, Mike and you did a project last year, it seems with somehow incredible uh, clairvoyance um, with my Drexel colleague, Michael Udell, um, about the 1793 yellow fever epidemic. Mm -hmm. And I had Michael on last week, also with David Barnes from um, University of Pennsylvania, public health historian. So we have talked a little bit on COVID calls about the yellow fever. What, what made you want to do that project and give us some of the things you, you learned? I mean, what a, what a remarkable, terrifying story whenever yeah. I sort of think back to that time. I, oh, you know what? The, the real impetus was that the, the big public health conference was coming to Philly. And this is like such a, such a big piece of public health history because it really marks the beginning of public health in this country. So that, that was sort of the timing. That explains the timing. And other than that, I was a history major myself in college and grad school. So I do love history. And I, I just thought it was an amazing story. Little did I know that it would be such a weirdly sure. timely story. So what were some of the themes that really um, stuck out to you when you were doing the, the research for that, that you now maybe see in I a think, different light? You know, it's just the, the suffering of people, I think, when you read about it in history books, you can't help but have that feel distant in a way, you know, so it's, it sounds, you read somebody's diary or we read a lot of the letters that Benjamin Rush wrote to his wife about his desperation in trying to fight this, this terrifying disease. And, you know, so you read those letters, but it seems, it feels distant. These are other people and this happened to other people. But then when this, when something like what we're going through right now makes all of this so much more real, you know, and you realize how silly it is to feel that distance mm. from, from our ancestors suffering where it feels like, Oh, that could never happen now. Those poor people, they had it really rough, but then you look around and you're like, Oh wow. You know, this, this safety that we feel now oftentimes really is reduced to an illusion. You're a student of history, but also mental health. So I want to ask you about this because we've talked a lot about the uses of history in COVID calls. Mm -hmm. And as a historian, I get asked a lot, especially right now, what can we learn from the past? And mm -hmm. oftentimes I don't feel like, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I mean, history doesn't tee up lessons learned for us in a neat and clean way. Mm -hmm. I think there are resonances and things we can learn, particularly from more recent history. But I also feel like maybe there is, there's a reservoir of compassion that when you look back into that history, that somehow you can see people at that time also experiencing fear of the unknown, mm -hmm. seeking information, loneliness. Mm -hmm. You know, that 
that there's a reservoir there of understanding and compassion that somehow is comforting, even if it's not like a public policy solution. I don't know if that makes any any sense yeah. to you, but no, I think that definitely that definitely makes a lot of sense. You know, I I often you know I I often have been in disbelief just how good we've had it, you know, how, how good I've had it in my life compared to my ancestors and those who've come before me. And, you know, I remember when I was pregnant with my children, I couldn't help but think about, you know, this goes back to being a history student, but, you know, I just kept thinking about all the women who died in childbirth and here I was pregnant. And then I'm thinking about what, what was that like to not know, you know, will I make it through this? And, and to know that there was a really good chance that this baby would die, you know? And all of this seems like so distant, but then when you are living a similar situation, I do think there's something that connects you to, to that strength and to the knowledge that as humans, we tend to go on no matter what, you know, and we, we, we want to live and we want to come out on the other side and we want to be resilient. And we are resilient, you know, that's, that's sort of a reassuring thing to know is that on the whole, we are far more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. And there have been a few times, especially during this crisis, where I felt like really stressed out and just really overwhelmed. And then I'm sort of thinking, like, think about your grandmothers, like... Right. <laughs> like, calm down you know this is fine you have a refrigerator full of food um you're sitting in a house you're okay right now you know there's there's it's it's okay it's it's scary and it's terrifying but it's okay maybe that also underlines the importance of uh the kind of reporting you're you're doing and the necessity that people actually document Mm -hmm. what they're living through is is there some mental health um aspect impact of that of people living through stress and actually using that as a moment of documentation or self-examination is that a useful strategy i think so i think so i mean sometimes i think just you know it's amazing how quickly we forget when we go through a difficult experience and then that experience eases it's very very yeah, you like, quickly forget it. Like, yeah, oh, wow, right. that's over now. Thank God, you know, yeah. that was really bad. So I think documenting how you feel and what you're thinking right now can be really helpful. And I also think there could be some great lessons in all of this, you know, in terms of how we do things and how we should not do things and what we want to do differently. One of the things that um, I, I know we're rightfully focused on the 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 terror and the the sort of really frightening aspects of this moment, but I've also been really blown away by the Mm pro-social aspects of this moment as well. I mean, ostensibly we're all in lockdown more or less in our homes, um, kind of in a sense to save the lives mostly of people we don't know. And uh, there's something a little reassuring to me about humanity about Mm -hmm. that to a certain degree. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. And I do think it will make us appreciate our communities more in in many ways, because I do think people are learning like, oh, I should know my neighbors. I should be able to to, you know, reach out like resilience is something you have to invest in over time. It's not something that you have tomorrow. You have to build it. You have to create it in your children. You have to create it in your neighborhood. You have to create it in your schools. And all the weaknesses of our system in many ways right now are, are becoming so in like, so clear, you know, so that I do think it is a chance for us to perhaps do better on the other side. That's, uh, there's a lot of resonance with what you're saying with, I had um, Daniel Aldrich, who's a disaster researcher, sociologist on, he's at, um, based in Boston, and, and he writes about resilience and disasters. And he said it exactly the way you just said it, which is that what we're kind of learning now is also places where we hadn't invested mm-hmm. in what we call resilience. Those, those relationships that are fraying more easily than others and and some which might be a bit stronger than we had realized mm-hmm. is a way to also map like on an average day a normal day what we're yeah. where we've put our attention i was standing on my front porch the other day um and i had this overwhelming desire to organize a block party 
I, that's like completely irrational in a sense. So I'm standing yeah. there like, I cannot wait to like, you know, meet my neighbors, some of whom I've never met, which is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting, you know, and it also, perhaps for many of us, it could change how we look at parenting. You know, I've never been a full-time parent. I mean, you're always a full-time parent, but you know, I was home with each of my children for three months and then I went back to work and that's how it's been, you know? So this has been like an incredible experience, not always yeah. <laughs> awesome, incredible experience, <laughs> but you know, it gives you like a real sense, like, wow, this is, this is, and this is how people parented for thousands of years Absolutely. before more recent history, you know, educating their children, having the children home, everybody in the same house. So it's, it's interesting to live through that. And, you know, not that I want to homeschool after this is over, but it's given me some appreciation of like, wow, you know, for millions of years, this is what, what family life was like. Right. I want to remind people I'm talking to Mike and Scott from WHYY on COVID calls. And I want to get to a question here from mm -hmm. uh, Kim Fortune. It's actually going back to some of the things we were talking about before, but um, get your perspective. She's asking, um, what have you seen or observed about the, um, Ah, about post-ICU syndrome, um, uh, which she's describing as a set of health problems that come up after people mm -hmm. experience a critical illness. Is that something that you've been familiar with? Yeah, you know what? I touched on that a few times um, in terms of trauma for people because sometimes being in the ICU and and being sort of rushed in in really difficult situation is incredibly traumatic for people but um i i think this will be a very interesting time to study this because especially intubation is very mm -hmm. traumatic for people when they can't breathe the whole experience of like not not being able to breathe is incredibly traumatic and then having the intubation happen it's it's all very invasive you are completely powerless you have to trust that these people are doing what they have to do they are all masked you can't see anybody's face so it's like i imagine it's kind of like being abducted by aliens not that i believe in aliens but it's sort of like an experience where you just like i have no idea and i don't even know if i'm going to be here so yeah i do think we will learn a lot about that and how we can ease that. The only thing I know about it so far is that what seems to help people, which healthcare uh, people always try to do, is sort of narrating what's happening so that they say to you, okay, you know, right now what I'm going to do is this, and then what I'm going to do is this, and then what you're going to feel is this. Um, and we also did a story on the pulse about what we're learning sort of about the psychological effects of serious medical quarantine like not what you and i are doing right now but like mm -hmm. being completely medically quarantined and how that impacts people but i i think you know every every time of stress leads to a gigantic surge usually in research and knowledge and i think it will be the same i mean we learned so much about trauma after 9/11 and we learned so much about you know trauma after vietnam we learned a lot about traumatic brain injuries after iraq and afghanistan so each time of peril brings with it a growing body of knowledge remember after 9-11 the there was a sort of a, a struggle because it, it was not mandatory that firefighters receive um, post-action mental health services. And there was this period of time when they said, oh, well, people can choose, can choose for themselves. You know, over a relatively short period of time, the fire department in New York said, no, you have to. They moved towards a very strong recommendation, I think eventually a requirement. Um, which meant they must have been finding something there about trauma, suicide rates, or other indications from yeah. alcohol abuse. Um, it, is there something similar for healthcare professionals? Because we're seeing something inside these hospitals and care centers now that I think has, none of them have ever experienced in their careers unless they've been combat medics. Yeah, that's another big, you know, I think right now it is too soon 
because I don't think hospitals had time to prepare for that aspect of things. You know, they had time to prepare for, you know, do we have enough gear and do we have enough beds? And, and I'm sure they, they have ways to try to offer help for, for the people who work there. But I would be surprised if they had a lot of time to put anything really meaningful in place. So all of that will have to emerge on the other side. It's all going to have to be sort of invented in this moment then in terms of yeah. some sort of protocols. And, and what about for the post-ICU syndrome, this intubation stress? Are there any sort of settled protocols around that that you know? Or is this another space they're going to have to invent yeah. this literally as they go? I mean, in my experience, you know, it seems like traumatic experiences, it doesn't really matter so much what exactly the trauma was. and trauma and PTSD, the good news about it is, is that it's incredibly treatable. So treating it, you know, there are some mental health conditions that are really difficult to treat and where the outcomes are not that great. But with trauma, with treatment is usually very successful and you can try different things. You know, you can do cognitive behavioral therapy, you can do exposure therapy, you can do talk therapy, you can do, they're all matters of things you can try. It's just more the fact that, um, that people need to connect to mental health services. So I do think, you know, I wonder if, if mental health uh, or if, if health professionals have a record of all of those who had a very traumatic hospitalization, is somebody following up with them, you know, and, and is anybody calling them up and saying, Hey, how are you? What's going on with you? These are the things that I feel like right now, because so much of this disease has occurred out of the site and out of the contact of average mm -hmm. folks um, that I don't know when we're going to discover this, but it's going to be some time before it yeah. becomes clear. I want to, in the time we have left, I wanted to come back to some of the challenges of a reporter at this time. Um, we have, it's a shifting story, day by day, hour by hour. And we also have a lot of input from people who have medical opinions who are not doctors, one of whom happens to be the president of the United States. Um, what are the sort of unique challenges of reporting a health crisis when we have so much information flowing in? I mean, you have a responsibility to fact check and give us information, but you can't be certain about everything that's coming through and you can't predict the future either. It's easier to report on things that have already happened, I mean, but this is unfolding. Yeah, it is unfolding. And, you know, in the early days, Reporters on, on NPR and on public radio reported that public health officials were saying, this is not going to be worse than the flu. Mm -hmm. Everybody said that and everybody reported it. And then at some point there was some information coming out that you shouldn't wear masks. We reported that because that's what we were told, you know, so, so the information is emerging and the, the bad information isn't just coming from, from all the usual suspects the bad like bad information is also sometimes emerging information and it's just what we know at this moment in time and you know none of us were wearing masks just a month ago right when we first started isolating i remember having one to go to the grocery store and then thinking this is really weird nobody's wearing it so i'm not going to walk around with masks so you know it's sort of you're dealing with a topic that is changing all the time. So we can only really do the best that we can. And misinformation has been around, I mean, it gets out faster now, but if you look back to even the yellow fever epidemic, mm -hmm. there were all these different newspapers and everybody wanted their information to get out and everybody had a cure and everybody had an approach. So I think as long as humans have communicated, we have always communicated bad information. It's just that now you can possibly reach a lot more people a lot more quickly, which makes there, it a bit scarier. Is there a debate among journalists about how many sources you need to talk to before you report something? Like, I mean, think about the chloroquine, uh, you know, that there may be these un, untested but potentially useful therapies that were out there. Now that seems to have been debunked mostly. Yeah. But I mean, you don't have the luxury of waiting a week or a month to report something, do you? Or 
how do you even No, I mean, it's sort of, you know, it depends on who's saying it. I mean, it, there are all these different, different things, you know, you certainly don't want to put out something out there. If, if, you know, Joe Schmo says do X, you know, but if it's coming from a source that has weight or that is communicating this, or it's coming from a university or from a researcher, it's a study, then, you know, we, we might consider mentioning it. So we try to be very careful, but this is really like, look, we've only known this virus for what, four months now, mm-hmm. you know? So, so the amount of information that's coming out is just incredible. To your earlier point, I went back and looked at the first New York Times story uh, from the second week of January. And in that story, they were still not reporting that there was a, a they weren't sure exactly how it was transmitted. Yeah. In the sort of early, you know, and then within a week it was on the front page, but yep. still it was very distant. And as you said about the masks, uh, the last time I went into my office, I had a mask and uh, I sent a picture of myself with it to my brother who immediately in true brotherly fashion wrote back and said, you idiot, you're not supposed to wear a mask. <laughs> no. The mask is a stupid thing to do. And you're gonna freak everybody out. And I, of course, conveniently, put my mask away and <laughs> you know yes. and now you can tell him he's the idiot <laughs> yeah yeah actually i forgot to do that i need to get on that yes, yeah, get yeah. on that right now <laughs> so i do have one more question for you um mm-hmm. and and it sort of speaks more broadly to to the media at this time so you're radio reporter and producer and radio is a uh a tried but true medium and been mm-hmm. with us for some time um how is this disaster, do you think, going to change our media ecosystem, either radio or the way radio and print interact with other kinds of media? What do you see shifting in the midst of this, what will end up being a two-year-long disaster? How is media going to change, do you think? Yeah, I think the biggest threat to us right now is a loss of of revenue so the media industry was already very stressed you know and you had a, a loss of of local papers and and local journalism and a lot of those places are really completely losing their sources of revenue right now so if that continues to happen and continues to happen for a long time where all the advertising dollars are gone for us in public media it's underwriting dollars if people aren't able to support the services um then that 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 ecosystem is simply going to vanish which would be terrifying you know because another thing is during times of pandemics you have to keep an extra eye on all of your local governments because lots of money is being doled out right now. Rules are being made. Is all of that fair? Probably not. You know, are some people really making out during this pandemic? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Are other people losing their shirts? Yes. So I think journalists, journalists right now are in a very tough position, much like a lot of healthcare providers in that we are absolutely needed on a very high demand level, but nobody can afford us. <laughs> so it's sort of like, right. to me, the big question is, how will our business model hold up? And that's, that's sort of what remains to be seen. Wow. So, yeah. um, you know, I think it's important to stress. I mean, it's the technology has made it possible, even for somebody like myself, to, we can have this conversation and I can put mm-hmm. it up on. But that's not... I'm not reporting. I'm not doing the work and with those depths of sources and, and yeah. what you have. So I'm, I'm a little worried that sort of the kind of the illusion of what journalism actually is, is out there. Mm-hmm. But the real substantial coverage that you do like at WHYY is not. Yeah, we will. It, it's tough, you know, and right now, I'll tell you what, like right now to, to request records, you know, municipalities never like to give up records that they don't want to share and then you have to do a right to know request and blah 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 it takes a lot of time and right now and i saw the same thing happening after 9 11 nobody you know people will just say oh we can't possibly show you this right now because we're so busy how dare you even ask us but this is precisely the time when you need to ask and investigative journalism right now my colleagues are working on a story about how different deaths are being counted in Philadelphia. That's a big story. And we need to hear about this and learn about it. But to 
to get your hands on those records and to, to pry them out of people is really hard right now. So I do think journalism is really important right now. It's just a question of, can we survive in this tough economic time? But we made it through the recession, so there's hope, you know? Right, and well, you said you were up at five o'clock this morning doing pledge drive uh, yes. at WHYY, and maybe we can just remind people that WHYY could certainly use your contributions. And yes. um, Mike and Scott, I'm a fan, and I really appreciate you spending this hour talking oh, thank about you. these issues, and I know the research community appreciates thank it. Thank you so much for inviting as, me, and well. um, yeah, happy to talk anytime. So thanks for doing these talks. I think it's a great way to to build a community of, of people talking to each other and learning about these issues. Okay, well, everybody stay tuned to The Pulse on WHYY and come back tomorrow at five o'clock on COVID Calls. We're gonna to talk to Camille Mackler and Carly Goodman about immigration and COVID-19. Stay healthy, everybody, and we will see you tomorrow. Thank you, Mike. See you later, thank you.